Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I am Anthony Oliveira, PhD, culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week things are going to get weird. We are in chapter four of the Book of Revelations and the visions proper have started. They are, as you'll see, very strange. Um, <laughs> we're going to go up into the spirit, whatever that means, get uh, taken into some kind of trance-like state, uh, and see, receive the vision before the throne. Um, a weird little uh, preamble, really, to when the action really kicks off as those seven seals start flying. Um, I'm in a new space uh, this week, and I have a co-host who is a sleeping cat, um, I think Dax will mostly stay quiet for this, but if you hear a little meow, that's who that is. Um, I have five things I want to talk about this week. The first one we're going to do is this strange trance-like state that our narrator kicks things off in. Um, it, there's a lot of weird discussion that has happened over the centuries about what really this is about. Uh, then we have the throne, uh, an odd little image. The 24 elders who we encounter. Uh, number three is going to be, nope, four, is going to be this sea of glass. And the fifth thing I want to talk about are these four creatures. So last time uh, we were in the letters to the churches, right? And even though they were strange and they were conversations with uh, the entity who I've been calling uh, Super Saiyan Jesus, the kind of supersonic Jesus, the invincibility star Jesus. Uh, we were on Earth, right? He was walking amidst the lampstands. He was literally moving through the circuit of the seven uh, churches of Asia Minor. Uh, it is now time for us to ascend. Um, so chapter four, which is obviously these uh, chapter divisions are not original to the text, but they are really um, smartly made uh, so far. Uh, and continuing into chapter five. But chapter four, which is what we're going to cover entirely this week, um, kind of kicks things off with what the narrator calls the things that shall be here after. Um, after this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, uh, which he has mentioned already, right? That's the chapter one thing, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit. Uh, what does that mean? Well, we've kind of seen versions of it uh, before, and uh, if you're a di diligent reader of the New Testament, you will certainly have seen it before. Um, it does seem that part of early Christian practice, and indeed part of a lot of practice of several Christian denominations still, is a kind of ecstasy, a kind of um, entering into some kind of altered state whereby one can prophesy or receive visions. You've seen footage of this, even if you are not part of one of these churches, of people falling down and speaking in tongues and all those things. It is um, a tradition that goes back all the way to, like, in the Book of Acts, when Pentecost descends, the Twelve Apostles can speak languages they could not previously speak. Um, and indeed, uh, good old Paul has a similar experience which he makes an allusion to in an uncharacteristically, uh, what shall we call it, uh, not self-promoting and bloviating way. <laughs> it's actually a really interesting 
uh, section of Paul in general because it also contains what many people think of as the moment where Paul comes out, actually. Uh, he had, well, I'll read you the whole thing. How about that? And then you can make of it what you will. Um, so this is 2 Corinthians 12, and he's talking about uh, if he must boast. Um, he's dealing with kind of these uh, intercommunity fights. There are people saying he sucks, which he does, uh, and <laughs> and also like they're experiencing these ecstatic visions. Why isn't he? And this is him clearly saying he has had them before. So I'll just read you. Actually, I'll read you a bit of eleven and into twelve. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, blessed be he forever, knows that I do not lie. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And this is when chapter 12 starts. It is necessary to boast. Nothing is... Nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ, and this is very clearly, even my footnote is like he's talking about himself. Uh, <laughs> I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Um, actually, the book of Revelations is unusual in that it does not segment heaven. Many Christian visions and many uh, Jewish apocalypses of this period talk about different levels of heaven. Um, uh, John will not do that. But anyway, sorry. He was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. That repetition is there. Um, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of one, of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, and this is, I'm just going to read this because it fascinates me and has fascinated me and many others, including like Oscar Wilde. Um, Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. So there you have it, the thorn in Paul's side, whatever that means. Uh, you can go listen to the Smith song, The Boy with the Thorn in His Side, if you want to. Um, that, that's not your main point. What is, is this getting caught up in the spirit. Um, as I've said, a huge part of a lot of Christian practice, a lot of our commenters come from traditions where this is a thing. So if you want to hear more of that, go check out the Patreon. Uh, as a Catholic, not really a thing that happened, although I do remember I once went to 
a um, uh, spiritual retreat with a man who told us about how he had had a head injury and ever since he had these visions and even as a kid I was like that sounds like maybe that's not a Jesus thing so much as like a brain thing but he had one while we were there and it looked a lot like an epileptic fit but you know uh, whatever uh, your mileage is gonna vary um the other thing worth mentioning, however, about all this uh, that is extremely germane to a thread we've been tracking throughout this podcast um, is the way uh, that this particular section gets looped into a lot of rapture doctrine. Uh, and I'm going to explain how. Um, you'll remember when we were reading the Gospel of John that there was a moment where Peter asked, I think it was Peter, it must be Peter, asked, um, what about him? In referring to the beloved disciple. And Jesus said, if he stay until I return, what is that to you? And as we talked about then, that was kind of meant to be a way of reframing the tradition that the beloved disciple would live until Jesus' second coming, right? It was supposed to be within a revelation, uh, within a generation, um, uh, that that would all happen. Obviously, that was not the case, so the Gospel of John has to kind of retcon that. But it did lead to the idea of, for example, the eternal Jew, the idea of someone who is still around wandering the earth until Jesus comes back, whoever that might be, Lazarus or the beloved disciple or Judas or whatever. Someone is supposed to, of the apostles, someone was supposed to stick around until Jesus returned um, because someone was supposed to see him rise again and supposed to see the end of days, was supposed to see um, the second coming. Now, uh, if, and this is really fun, it's a, it's a cute little bit of rules lawyering, actually, if the, our author of Revelations is in fact John of Patmos, then what happens is he is now receiving that vision of the second coming, which means, <laughs> according to this very clever bit of rules lawyering, he did in fact live to see Jesus come again. Isn't that clever? Isn't that so funny? Um, <laughs> but the other aspect of this is that they go further and... Um, dispensationalists, which is the idea of a rapture, an American idea from the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, gets adapted into uh, this being a type of what will happen to the whole church. Uh, if you want to see more of this, you can check out Clarence Larkin and people like him. But just as John is taken up and gets to observe the final events from heaven, and does not suffer them, so too will the churches. And the way they get away with this is like pointing out like, look, the seven churches, the spirit, the seven lights, the seven spirits are in heaven for these events, which must mean that all of the church will go up into heaven. The church will be called up into heaven before the true church, before all the terrible calamities descend. All right, next up we've got the throne. Uh, at once I was in the spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Um, around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on thrones are 24 elders. We'll get to the elders in a second. Uh, what's up with this throne? Well, it's, I mean, honestly, 
if you want to see these images elsewhere, you just have to look at Isaiah. Um, I'll give you specifics here. Isaiah 6 will give you a lot of this, the doxology that comes up in a minute. Ezekiel 1 to 2, which is the um, vision of the throne that Ezekiel has. And uh, Daniel 7 is going to give you a lot of this. But um, in fact, the image is almost entirely pulled from Ezekiel here. Uh, I read a scholar this week who pointed out quite brilliantly, I thought, that all of chapter four could be written by an observant uh, Jewish uh, prophet. Like there's really nothing in it that requires any Christianity at all. Um, asterisk when we talk about the 24, but as you'll see, there's possibilities that has nothing to do with Christianity either. Um, so this image is very like that. In fact, uh, John actually describes God even less than Ezekiel does here. Um, there's kind of a great way that God, it's, it reminds me of those Jack Chick tracks. If you've ever seen a Jack Chick track where he depicts God, he's like this white outline. <laughs> and that's kind of the vibe here. Um, I saw a lot of ink spilled this week about uh, which, uh, what the specifics of each stone mean. It's a little overdetermined, but it's worth thinking about. Um, Jasper and Carnelian, here it's called. In the reading, it was a sardine stone, which, is, <laughs> which just means it's a sard. It's, it's from Sardis is where that stone is known to be from. In both cases, red. I actually did not know Jaspers are red, but uh, Google image search says they're red. So there you go. Uh, the image is obviously, the point is like, the brilliance of a gemstone, right? That's that's the point of this. I saw some commenters talk about um, the priestly breastplate, right, as like a site of a lot of gemstones, but, and this is one of them, this is one of the stones that is set in it, but like it feels like you would do all of them, right? If you were gonna make it about that. He certainly is capable of that. He's just reaching for metaphors of brilliance, right? That's also why you get this very strange image that I'm kind of obsessed with of a rainbow that looks like an emerald. <laughs> the point is that it's shining. Um, it is not an all green uh, rainbow, although it does remind me, I mean, this image is very Wizard of Oz, right? A throne room with this powerful thunder and lightning figure, right? Like, obviously, L. Frank Baum is borrowing from this. Um, I even saw one commenter be like, oh, it's encircled by a rainbow, which means the covenant is fulfilled because on earth, rainbows are only halves. And it's like, come on, buddy. Like, you're really reaching on this one. Uh, <laughs> the throne will be the absolutely most controlling image in the book of Revelations. It actually is mentioned specifically 40 times, um, which is a wild amount. Um, it is the thing that survives even when, spoilers, the heaven and earth are destroyed. It is the prima mobile, the thing that does not move at the center. Um, this is an image that Milton borrowed quite a lot, right? Like, uh, the fixed point of all of creation is this throne. Um, the next image is weirder, and its meaning is, in fact, quite obscure. Um, and seated, so around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Let's think about these 24 
elders for a minute. Um, most commenters will tell you that it's 24 because it's 12 plus 12, right? The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which of course are themselves selected to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel by Jesus, right? Um, a practice that many scholars think Jesus actually did do. It is sort of a self-conscious choice. The number 12 is considered so important by the apostles that when one of them betrays, they elect a replacement, right? It's important to them to uh, maintain the number 12. And indeed, we know that symbology is important to uh, John of Patmos because he uses it specifically later when he's talking about um, the foundations of heaven. Uh, 12 of them are the apostles and then 12 gates. I forget which is which, but you will get to it. Um, and 12 gates are the, uh, the 12 tribes. So he is thinking about 12 and 12 as an option. So that's one reading of it. They must, well, this is tricky. Um, because they sound like human entities, right? They're wearing crowns, which is not really a thing an angelic being does. Uh, and indeed, we are going to see some very strange angelic beings in a moment. If you want to see the other 12 and 12, by the way, it's Revelations 21, if you want to jump ahead. Um, actually, it's fun. These beings, these throne beings, are mentioned exactly 12 times, which is itself quite interesting. <laughs> um but there's other things they might be. The other indicator that they're human entities, by the way, is they talk about their redemption, right? Which is not a language that angels would use. But on the other hand, they talk, they ask questions later um, that make it seem like they don't understand human salvation either. They have a kind of weird choral function uh, as we move through the book of Revelations, as you'll see. And Honestly, people are not sure what they represent. It's very unclear. 12 and 12 is a good guess. The other good guess, if you look in um, the book of Chronicles, uh, there's a moment where uh, the priestly orders of Israel are counted. They're numbered. Uh, and it is realized, it is determined that they basically have 24 um, heads of families in them. Um, sort of the Levitical orders are numbered and that's determined to be their numeration. And there is a way that they go on to found towns. Um, one of the commenters did a really great job on this if you want to check out the Patreon. Um, but this is commented quite a lot in other scholarship. Uh, and it makes sense given our narrator's obsession with Jewish priestly practice that he would know that and incorporate it here. And indeed, these characters, whoever these 24 elders are, um, very frequently perform priestly functions in the book of Revelations. They offer sacrifices to God. They offer up uh, supplications to God, etc., etc. Um, the deeper weird pull is that they're the, based on the 24 star gods of the Babylonian pantheon. Um, that's, a, that's a reach to me, but 12 and 12 makes sense. And honestly, we don't have to determine if it's one or the other, right? You can see how that would appeal to him, especially as such a, a character interested in so much prophecy, that he would see this as, um, oh, how interesting that the priestly orders echo the 12 original tribes and then the 12 apostles, uh, a concept we now think of um, in, in ugly secessionist languages, like, oh, the Old Testament, 12 of the Old Testament, 12 of the New, right? Um, okay, next is this weird sea of glass 
what's up with the sea of glass image here, this, this expanse of crystal before the throne. It has inspired a great many amazing artists. It has uh, one thing, and we should never discount this. I always want to keep this in mind. One thing is it looks really cool, right? Like it's a it's an amazing, evocative, sublime image, a crystal sea, a sea of glass. Um, it gives us a sense of the massive expanse that we are beholding uh, along with our narrator here. Um, the other thing it could be is the celestial sea. I love the idea of this being, like imagine God on his throne. I, I love this image from, I don't know if you've seen the movie Elizabeth the Golden Age, but there's this sequence in it where she's in a room that is her map room uh, and she's standing on England and she's watching the ships move on the map in like this huge scale in front of her throughout the room that is mapping the battle with Spain. And there's a way that that's like the cool image here that like this is the untamed cosmos um, down into which Earth is plunged, right? You'll remember that in uh, Jewish cosmology, uh, for example, when God floods the earth for in, in the Noah story, he opens the windows of the sky. The idea is that we're inside this kind of um, cake stand. The earth is a flat disk encased in the air we live in, and above it is water, which is why it's blue. And when it rains, the casements of the sky are open. There's water below us and water above us. And I love the idea that above even that is the pool into which God gazes uh, down into our reality, right? It's like a portal image. Um, there's like that Game of Thrones castle where the Aerie, right, where she she's sitting on her throne and there's like this disc that is open in front of her um, down into the world. Uh, that spoiler someone falls down into. <laughs> um, but that's not the only possibility here and one which is almost certainly on the narrator's mind and will be throughout this scene is that even though we're in a throne room, it's very clear, um, and I'm gonna say this in reverse because the opposite is what's true, it is clearly designed to mimic the tabernacle in the temple. Um, flip it and reverse it. The tabernacle in the temple, as the narrator would put it, is designed to mimic the layout of heaven, which means that the throne room in heaven um, looks like a priestly function space. It has the 24 elders who, as I said, are performing uh, priestly functions, but it also has this sea of glass. There was a space in Solomon's temple called the Brazen Sea. Um, it was this basin made of bronze, hence brazen, that's what brazen means, um, that was used as a laver, as a, as a space to wash oneself, to wash to perform the ablutions that would be required to perform priestly function. Um, the Brazen Sea was massive. Um, it's, uh, you can look up its specific, as with many of the spaces in the temple, uh, the Bible actually contains its very specific measurements, um, but it's like, what's the diameter on the sucker? Well, it's in cubits, which is the measure of your uh, forearm, basically. Uh, and <laughs> you're looking at five cubits high, 10 cubits in diameter from brim to brim, and 30 cubits in circumference. Shaped like a lily blossom, contained enough water for 2,000 baths, whatever that means. Um, and there's like artistic um, renderings of it if you want to check that out. But 
Um, so it makes sense that God has this like massive version of the brazen sea, right? Because this is also a worship space. As we will see in a moment, spoiler, well, not a moment, next week, um, it is a sacrifice space too. It is a space in which priestly functions are going to perf- be performed at the most macro level. And the last thing to talk about, (laughs) which takes up the bulk of the rest of the chapter, are the four beasts. And immediately I have to uh, adjust that, because although you often hear them called the four beasts, um, a much better translation of it is living creatures. Um, The word here is very specifically different from the word used for the malevolent beings later. Um, the word used later is probably better translated as like wild things. Um, here it's the same word that gives us the root for like zoo. Um, it's literally a thing that is alive, uh, a thing that has life. Um, around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature... Uh, with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. I'm going to just read the whole description (laughs) because it's so wonky, Uh, and then we'll double back and try to unpack it. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Even weirder, right? (laughs) Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, holy, holy, holy. The Lord, God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed, and were created. What is up with these? Well, um, quite a lot, as you could imagine. Uh, And I'm going to start by reading you a bit from the very beginning, literally the first thing in the book of Ezekiel. Um, As I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually, and in the middle of the fire, something like gleaming Amber. Is amber like jasper and carnelian? You might say that it is. In the midst of it, something like four living creatures. This was their appearance. They were of human form. Each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the foot of a, a, of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them moved straight ahead without turning as they moved. As for the appearance of their faces, the four had the face of a human being, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. Each moved straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. This gets weirder. They're like wheel bodies. Um, 
<laughs> this is a Merkaba uh, uh, vision, a vision of God's throne in both cases. Um, and as you can see, there's clearly some inspiration happening from Ezekiel, but everything is being reported with a difference. Um, is he purposely changing it? Is he adapting it? Um, is he splicing in some Isaiah, for example? Um, one thing that is possible, there's a way to render that uh, phrasing in Ezekiel. I'll just describe it, right? Just to, to recap it. It's like a human looking person mostly, except it has weird calf feet. And it sounds like it has four faces, uh, the ox, the eagle, the human, uh, and the lion. But it's also possible, and possibly John has read it this way, that um, each one has one face, and what Ezekiel is triangulating when he says right and left is what side of the throne they're on. In any case, what you're seeing a description of is beings we usually call the cherubim, the four entities who sit around the throne. Uh, again, if you think about the tabernacle space, if you think about the Ark of the Covenant, you've all seen Indiana Jones, right? You can see when you look at the Ark of the Covenant that it is surrounded by these cherubim shapes. Um, and that's attested to in, obviously, the Bible. Um, what are they? Why four? What is with these images? Uh, this is like very lost, actually. We have lots of speculation, and I'll give you all the speculation I can find, um, but it is, as with the 24 elders, not a settled matter at all. Um, obviously, they're alive. Four is usually an earth number, it, the four corners of the earth, the idea of like a triangulated, well, not triangulated, uh, uh, the four dimensions of a space right? So they could represent something earthly. And that is bolstered by the fact, the choices of these beings, these animals, right? Um, I saw, for example, the idea that the lion represents the wilds of creation, the wilds of life. Um, the calf or the ox represents the cultivated aspects of our world, the spaces that have been farmed. Um, and the man is obviously like urban, like cities and towns, and the eagle is the air, the sky, right? But I also saw someone say it is the four, they represents the, that their characters are that they are the noblest, the strongest, the wisest, and the swiftest, right? Um, I saw another account that says, oh, well, obviously, this is a Christian idea, but possible emerging in the early Jewish texts, that this is a text that thinks of there being four prime angels. So maybe these are Uriel, Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel. Um, but there's other weird dimensions, right? Like all these eyes, like the idea that they are all seeing, even internally, they see within themselves. Um, one scholar said this is an odd image. Maybe they just means it's in their armpits. I don't know why. <laughs> why is eyes in your armpits a less awkward image? No idea. Um, Obviously, the point is that they're all seeing. They, they're like Argus, right? There's something Greek about them. They are ever vigilant, um, ever moving. Um, he's obviously thinking about Ezekiel, but he's also re-triangulating the, the, the tabernacle space. Um, the big interpretation worth uh, mentioning here uh, that is obviously backdated into this, that is someone reading into it, but which has become so iconic 
in Christian symbolism. In fact, if you pull even like a tarot deck, if you look at the Wheel of Fortune on a tarot deck, you'll see its four corners are actually the ox, the eagle, the man, um, and the lion. Um, but the, the, the most prominent interpretation of these in Christian imagery is that they are the four Gospels. Um, Mark... And, and the way this gets, Irenaeus is the first one to take a, can at, take a uh, kick at the can at this, but almost all the church fathers did, and almost all of them have a different interpretation of which is which and why. Uh, but the most famous is that Mark is the lion because it begins with the voice that cries out in the wilderness. It opens with Jesus emerging from the wilderness with John the Baptist's baptism. Um... The next is, uh, well, whichever one you want to pick. Matthew is the human because it begins with the genealogy of the human Christ. It opens, they're always about the opening, all four of them. So if you think about how they open, you'll be able to remember which is which. Uh, kind of, but it's kind of fake too. Um, so Matthew opens with the genealogy. So Matthew is about Christ's humanity. So he gets the human face. Um Luke gets the calf or the ox because it opens with the priestly sacrifice. Luke opens with Zechariah. It's the one that gives the um, the retcon that John the Baptist is actually Jesus's cousin and his dad is one of the high priest. Well, not a high priest, but he's a priest uh, who doesn't believe that this miracle is about to happen, so he's struck dumb. Um, so it opens with images of sacrifice. It's consumed by images of sacrifice. So Luke is the ox. And... Um, uh, John is the eagle because it opens with in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It opens with the highest viewpoint, the bird's eye view of creation. So he gets the eagle. Um, so you can always, it's easy to identify uh, the four evangelists in paintings because they're almost always with their animal. Uh, if you ever go to Venice, San Marco Square in Venice, the, the piazza, is dominated by images of lions because it's St. Mark, right? San Marco. Um, and that's handy. It is obviously false. It is obviously not what John is thinking about because John would have no sense of four Gospels, right? The idea that there's four canonical accounts of Jesus' life is a completely, like that is, that comes so much later. The canon, Christian canon doesn't stabilize for a very long time. John would have no idea of that. And of course, if you believe in Christian revelation, he doesn't have to know about it for it to be the case. Um, but that is almost certainly not what he's doing. What's up with the praying bit, the holy, holy, holy bit? Well, that's easy to look up too. Let's look up Isaiah 6, 3. Uh, I'll give you the whole of 6 just so that you get the preamble bit. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Again, this is a, a vision of the throne, right? Um, high and lofty. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had, and here you go, six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. So Ezekiel had four wings, Isaiah had six, and um, John splits the difference. And he steals some stuff from Ezekiel, and he takes the six wings from Isaiah. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Um, 
So again, like not only an image of earthliness, right? The whole earth, but that, that what we call the doxology. You hear it in every mass. Have you ever been to a Christian mass? Um, some version of this is translated and spoken by the priest and congregation. Holy, holy, holy Lord, uh, God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest, right? Um, the things that John has added uh, this idea that thou art Lord and God and you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power and then the, for you created all things. Um, the first part of that is actually very specifically what the Romans had to say to the deified emperor. This is the language very specifically actually of how you had to talk about Domitian. Um, and there's actually uh, this stuff about the 24 elders taking off their crowns and throwing them before the king. We actually have accounts of vassal kings to Rome um, having to do this to images of Nero. Now, uh, asterisk, Christianity is so influential, it's possible those stories become apocryphal to explain this stuff. But uh, a devout Christian wouldn't make up a story that makes this feel less legitimate an image, right? Uh, so... It seems more likely to me that he has his year, especially the phrasing, the, the Lord and God stuff. It feels like this is the first of very many digs at Roman uh, emperor deification. Um, okay, that's what I have to say about these crazy images. Next week, things it gave even weirder. Uh, if you haven't played the video game Cult of the Lamb, you should probably check it out because we're going to get a version of it starting next week. I'm about to turn over and tackle the extremely interesting Patreon comments. We have a lot to dig into about um, images from uh, Mormonism, actually, uh, which is super cool, and I'm so glad we have correspondents who can help me with these more outlying elements. Um, so check that out if you haven't yet, uh, patreon.com slash Uh Next week, Cult of the Lamb. Thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye. Thank you.